This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. World War II radio podcast. Today, we have the August 8th, 1943 edition of CBS World News Today. It includes analysis and updates on the war from Algiers, London, Detroit, Honolulu, Washington, and New York. The World War II radio podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Be sure to visit our website at brickpicklemedia.com slash podcast, where you can find links to past episodes and other information. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash ww2radio. So thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. World News Today, brought to you by Continental Radio and Television Corporation, makers of Admiral Radio, America's smart set. By shortwave broadcast, direct from important overseas stations, as well as the leading news centers of our own country, CBS correspondents are waiting to bring you a complete report from the world's political and battlefronts. But first, here's Doug Edwards. The British Eighth Army has swept three quarters of the way around the western slope of Mount Etna and has captured the Axis strongholds of Adrano and Bronte. British reports say the American Seventh Army is now within 50 miles of Messina. RAF planes based in Britain have struck a triple blow at North Italy by bombing Milan, Turin, and Genoa. The Russians are advancing steadily in their drives for Kharkov and Briand. And from Madrid come unconfirmed reports that Reichsmarschall Goering has become Germany's new strongman as the army takes over. And now, for news direct from the Mediterranean Theater, Admiral Radio takes you to CBS Algiers. Farnsworth Fowle reporting. When I landed in Palermo, I bought a German guidebook that trusted me thoroughly in what to see in Sicily, what was ancient, what was picturesque, and what was beautiful. That book wasn't much use to me. The memorable part of the trip wasn't the places I saw, it was the people I met and talked with across the island to Japan. First, the Americans. There was an Italian-speaking soldier from Cambridge, Massachusetts who, with a handful of others, was putting the town of Kapitsu into shape after the fighting troops had gone through and before the Amdok staff arrived. To quiet the ears, restore public order, get some field Germans out of hiding, and see that people got their daily bread, call for plenty of practical common sense with a considerable dash of courage. An infantry soldier from Trenton, New Jersey, named Herman Galbach, told me how his outfit hung on right under the noses of the Germans in front of Galena, practically surrounded by enemies, and while the night before, wounded in the foot, he had made his way three and a half miles back to our main position. While I was talking to him in the casualty center, an orderly handed him a nice blue leather case with a purple heart on it. But what he really was waiting for 
was a letter from his wife, Minnie, in the wax. There was the general in command of an untied division, he said. The Germans thought we were chaps enough to stick to the road, but we showed them that we could fight just as well as they can in the hills. And better, if he could fairly have added. And his superior general, who said that if all the French divisions fought like that, the generals wouldn't have any worries. There was young Colonel Arthur C. Salisbury, commanding the famous pursuit group. A couple of weeks ago, his plane caught on fire over the enemy lines. He drove it as far as he could, and then bailed out, landing just inside the British lines, where they had started brewing a cup of tea for him as soon as they saw the parachute on its way down. Up on Bloody Ridge, after all these years, I ran into a Nazi who admitted that he and Germany were beaten, and I gather that that feeling is on the increase among lots of other German soldiers. I met lots of Italians, too, though in Sicily they think of themselves as Sicilians first and foremost. In their towns and villages, the flamboyant utterances of Mussolini have been plastered all over the public places for more than 20 years without the taking root. But the tragedy of it is that nothing else seems to have grown up in its place. A judge in Nicosia told me how he and his fellow judges had wept in their private rooms when they were told to render judgment in favor of a friend of a friend of the Duchess. But they had done. After all, he said, if they hadn't, they would have lost their jobs. Sicily has given a grand welcome to the Allied forces. If Europe is to be like that, we can expect pleasantness and passive cooperation everywhere. But I don't think that Sicily is the real pattern for Europe. Further north and east, we'll find people who have been fighting on our side, many of them actively, for years. They will have lots of positive ideas about their future. The Americans I met in Sicily gave me a feeling of pride. The Sicilians, an amiable people, who have not yet had a chance to grow up. I return you now to New York. More news in just a moment. But first, here is Warren Sweeney with a word from Admiral Radio. This is a true story about a general of the Army Air Forces, the heroism of his men, and a radio. Several months ago, flying fortresses were on a mission 400 miles inside Jap-held territory. They sank two enemy tankers. Then Jap Zero's attack, disabling the lead fortress. It made a crash landing. The crew got into rubber boats, paddled for a nearby island as the Japs began machine-gunning them. The other fortresses drew away the fire, circled continuously to protect the men in the water. But rescue was out of the question. A flying fortress, you see, is a land-based plane, unable to set down in water. No, rescue wasn't quite out of the question, because flying fortresses are equipped with fine radios, many of them being built by admirals. A message sent by radio brought a Navy PBY flying boat. Every member of the disabled plane's crew was rescued. Among them, one of the Army Air Force's most distinguished fighting generals. Here, unmistakably, is an example of radio's value on the battlefront. Its power to coordinate action, its importance in preserving life. Here, too, is a thrilling story insofar as Admiral and Admiral workers are concerned. For both great Admiral plants are turning out these radios that serve so well, building every sort of radio device that will help bring defeat to the enemy and victory to our own forces. Now, here once again for more radio is Doug... Edwards. Britain-based bombers have given Italy a fresh idea of the price it must pay for stalling on the peace issue. RAF Lancasters flew over northern Italy last night to pound the cities of Milan, Turin, and Genoa. These three targets contain some two-thirds of Italy's industries and their centers of communication for the northern part of the country. 
Last night's raids are therefore believed to have slowed down what remains of the Italian war effort. Peace demonstrations in these cities have already affected production. The defense of the cities also seems to have weakened. Only two planes were lost from the hundred that took part in the attack. In the RAF's previous raid on Turin alone, 13 planes were lost. The British Air Ministry says the attacks reveal the significant fact that the Germans have not reinforced anti-aircraft defenses in northern Italy. The visibility was good over the targets, permitting accurate and concentrated bombing. The Swiss radio says that from the Swiss frontier, enormous fires were seen burning in the Milan area some 30 miles away, and that only toward morning did these fires disappear behind the pall of smoke. The Italian high command admits that considerable damage was done. It looks as though new air blows may be in the making for another Axis satellite. This time, it's Hungary. A shortwave broadcast from London has reminded Hungarian workers of the devastating Allied raids on the Romanian oil center of Ploiesch and on the German port of Hamburg. And the Hungarians are warned that they should move away from industrial communication centers in order to save their own lives and those of their families. Last night, Germany's Rhineland felt the sting of RAF mosquito bombers while nighters hit airfields and rail centers in France. Three bombers are reported missing from these operations. And today, the air war against Western Europe being carried on by flights of Allied fighter planes which have been shuttling back and forth across the English Channel. Spanish press dispatches from Berlin report that powers of enormous magnitude have been centered in the hands of Reichsmarshal Hermann Goering. The meeting of army leaders and Nazi party chieftains at Adolf Hitler's headquarters, as announced from Berlin yesterday, is considered in Madrid as confirmation of various reports from German and Spanish sources that the German military is taking over the Reich, preparatory to a long war of defense. These reports say a triumvirate composed of Field Marshal Title Chief of the High Command, Admiral Dennitz, Commander-in-Chief of the Navy, and Goering is now the real head of Germany. Keitel and Dönitz are said to represent the armed forces, with Goering acting as a middleman between the military and the Nazi party. German sources in Madrid are quoted as saying by a neutral who cannot be otherwise identified, say the German army considers it necessary to retain the Nazi party headed by Hitler as a facade and is unlikely to risk dissolution of the party or any official announcement of its loss of real power. The Italian example led the German generals who were declared to have taken military direction of the war into their own hands, even before Il Duce fell, to decide that the administrative chaos would be too great should the party be publicly slapped. At last reports, Red Army troops had knifed to within 16 miles of the key German stronghold of Kharkov in Russia. Russian planes are striking behind the lines and already have smashed great stores of Axis supplies and ammunition. Berlin admits that a Soviet spearhead coming in south of Kharkov has penetrated to within 25 miles of the threatened city. To the north, in the offensive which has swept Orel into Russian hands, Soviet forces rapidly are approaching Karachev, within 25 miles of Bryansk. Moscow dispatches say the Germans are falling back to a new defense line west of the Desna River. Colombia's traveling correspondent, Don Pryor, is standing by in Detroit to introduce two of the workers he met in one of the world's greatest war plants, Giant Willow Run. Admiral Radio takes you now to CBS Detroit. Don Pryor reporting. Henry Ford's Willow Run plant is turning out farmers and plenty of them. That's the big news in Detroit, in a city that strains and bulges at the seams with big news and big problems. Detroit's miracle is still at work. 
the miracle by which one brawny city became the throbbing symbol of production the world over. And in spite of all the false starts and premature predictions, Willow Run really is one of the major miracles of all. The only way you can really measure its size, understandably, is by the ache in your feet when you follow the production of Liberator bombers all the way to the making of tiny rivets at one end, down the assembly lines to the airfield, and watch them fly away. The Liberator, you know, is one of the finest bombers in the world. They say it will carry a bigger load, farther, faster, and higher than any other now in use. And it's being improved all the time. Here are a couple of people who know. One is a 24-year-old girl, Mildred Ellerholtz. She makes the final inspection on what they call the aft fuselage assembly. How did you happen to start working with airplanes, Mildred? I've always been crazy about them. I'd rather fly than eat. Oh, you fly them too? Yes, I have about five hours in the air already. When I get 25 more, I'm going to go into the fairman. Well, what does your job here consist of? I have to inspect the whole rear section and okay it before it goes on down the line. It's up to me to see that all the parts are properly installed, all the rivets sound, everything in perfect shape. But did you ever fly a Liberator? No, I've never been in one, but someday I hope to be able to fly one right off the line. Well, I hope you do. Here's a man who does just that. He's Ralph W. Smith, one of a big staff of Ford test pilots. You've heard of him before. He was a pilot for Admiral Byrd in the Antarctic. Just before the war, he delivered a private plane to Borneo to carry missionaries into the interior. Incidentally, Don, I played bridge coming back from there with a fellow named Colonel Eisenhower. Oh, yes, I've heard of him. He's been doing pretty well lately, hasn't he? But now tell us briefly, Ralph, what the flight department at Willow Run does with these bombers after they come off the line. Each ship gets at least three flights before the Army takes it. First, one of our crews takes it up to the initial flight. What does that crew consist of? A pilot, co-pilot, flight engineer, and radio man. They check 81 different items, including the bomb site, automatic pilot, all the instruments, the radio, and gun turrets. But not the guns themselves. And, of course, they check the general flight characteristics of the ship. When they come down, they make a full report. We call it a squawk report. That goes to all the departments involved, and they make whatever corrections are called for. Oh, then you fly it again? That's right. That's the routine shakedown flight. On that flight, we also check the guns, and the crew makes out another full report. After all corrections have been made, we give it the Army acceptance flight. You mean the Army flies it? No, the Army has designated certain members of our staff for that job. They accept the ship for the Army. And then it goes off to war. To England or North Africa, perhaps, or to the South Pacific, to drop its share of bombs on the enemy. There you are. That's the story of Willow Run and a thimble. The big bombers are really rolling off the line and flying away. Not just in dribbles, either. This is Don Pryor in Detroit, returning you to CBS in New York and Doug Edwards. For Washington reaction on the reports of changes in the German government, and for news of other developments here at home, Admiral Radio takes you to CBS Washington. Lee White reporting. There's been no official reaction here as yet to the Spanish reports that the German government has been reorganized under Marshal Goering as chief of state with Marshal Keitel and Admiral Dönitz as his aides. It's still not clear whether Hitler has really been kicked upstairs. The State Department is following its usual policy of wait and see. Cordell Hull had no comment to make when I called his office this afternoon. Observers in Washington, however, point out that militarization of the Nazi regime has not been entirely unexpected. They view it as the logical consequence of the collapse of Italy and the waning prestige of fascism throughout Europe. German army leaders, it's said, have always taken the view that when the time came, it would be necessary for the army to take control of the state in order to prevent an internal collapse in Germany. 
This is what now appears to have happened. Control of foreign affairs, propaganda, and even of rationing are said to have been taken over by the German army. The Nazi party will not be disbanded, however, it's reported, for fear that chaos would result as it has in Italy. And Hitler remains in nominal control, it's said, though he's believed to have been divested of most of his authority. Norman Armour, our ambassador to Argentina, has let it be known that he's returning to the United States in protest against the continued pro-German policy of the Ramirez government. The State Department's made no mention of the reasons for Mr. Armour's recall, but it's understood in Washington that in return for American recognition of his government two months ago, General Ramirez promised to break his ties with Germany and gradually bring Argentina over to the side of the Allies. Instead, he's been moving in the opposite direction. Argentina is now closer to fascism than she was even under Ron Castillo. The Ramirez government is setting up fascist controls over American and British industry, and reports reaching Washington indicate that our businessmen in Buenos Aires have made strong protests with the State Department. Here at home, the War Production Board has announced that though we produced 7,373 planes during July, we fell short of our quota by 627. I return you now to New York. Next, we're going to hear from a Marine Sergeant Gunner who turned down an offer of $1,000 for his tail gunner seat on a bomber sent to raid the Japs. For his story, Admiral Radio takes you to CBS Honolulu, Webley Edwards reporting. Here's a 19-year-old Marine Sergeant Gunner who turned down an offer of $1,000 cash for his seat at the tail gun of an Army B-24 Liberator bomber in the recent Wake Island raid. He had the hope that he'd get a zero. He did. He's Sergeant William C. Campbell of Denver, Colorado, whose parents now live at 3210 Crossbill, Louisville, Kentucky. Will you tell us about it, Sergeant? Well, the army was going to bomb Wake Island, and one of the field gunners came down with appendicitis. They called for volunteers from Marine gunners, and every one of us volunteered. So we put all the names in the hat, shook it up, and I was the lucky one. Right away, everybody started asking me if they could take my place. And when I said no, they said they would put up money and shoot dice for me, but I didn't want to do it. Then one Marine officer, Captain Bellier, offered me a thousand dollar case. I would let him go in my place, but I didn't want to take it. Well, a thousand dollars is a lot of money, Sergeant. Yeah, I know it is, but I wanted to make the trip. Well, tell us about the raid. Well, about 30 Jap zeros were in the air. One of them hit our controls and was veered out by herself, away from our formation. As soon as we got apart, all the zeros seemed to come with us. They were all colors. Solid red, yellow, silver, green, and blue. Our plane got credit for three of them. What about the one you got? One of them came towards their tail, but he kept away. Others were twice by from the front, and I think I hit a couple of them, but I didn't see them go down. Then I heard on the phones that another was coming to get ready. I heard the firing up front, and I saw him at my left. I saw the fire, and I could see my traces going into him. I kept on firing birds. He blew up, and I could feel a vibration as he went to pieces in all directions. Were you glad you didn't take the thousand dollars for your place? I sure was. It's my first combat experience, and I felt good about it. Sergeant William C. Camel, Marine gunner who flew in an emergency as still gunner in an Army bomber in the recent Wake Island raid, has been decorated with the Air Medal for setting a splendid example for all members of the Armed Forces of the United States for extreme devotion to duty and complete disregard for personal danger. Good luck to you, Sergeant Camel. This is Webley Edwards at Pearl Harbor. I return you now to New York. We've heard a lot about the training of our soldiers and about their experiences on the battlefronts, 
Today, Bill Slocum Jr. is waiting here in our New York studio to interview a guest who will lift the blackout on a soldier's experiences from completion of his training to the time he's at sea en route to the front. Here is Bill Slocum Jr. On a sultry, moonless night not too long ago, I watched thousands of my countrymen go through what must have been one of the toughest nights of their lives. They went through it to a man, without heroics, without tears. They went through it with a simple dignity and pride that fairly shouted their complete and utter dislike of the job they have to do and their complete determination to do it as well as they could, up to and including contributing their lives to the successful conclusion of their mission. They were leaving the United States. They were bent under the weight of barracks bags and roofs. They were American soldiers boarding a transport. Their eyes were not the eyes of heroes gladly going off to war. They were the eyes of nice, decent kids who were leaving home and didn't like it. And their chins weren't jutting in any heroic and devil-may-care angle, but their eyes were clear and knowing and without any trace of fear, and their chins were firm. They were leaving from the New York port of embarkation. As they neared the gangplank, a checker called their last name. Each soldier answered his last name by calling out his first name. Then he had said the last thing he would say in this country for a long time. Later, we talked to the man in charge of the entire operation. Major General Homer Groninger, who wears the Transportation Corps insignia. General Groninger is all Army, stiff and straight, immaculate and precise. But when he told us how he ran his embarkations, the brass hat slowly disappeared, and there emerged a nice gray-haired gentleman who wore two stars on his shoulders as though they had been put there by an act of Congress and not by an act of God. I figured if I were somebody's father and I heard how General Groninger runs his embarkations, I would feel a lot better. So I asked the general to come over today and tell this coast-to-coast audience what he told us. General Groninger. The United States Army knows when your boy climbs aboard a troop ship, he's a serious lad. We know he's not afraid, but he is going away from home. First, while he is awaiting shipment in the staging area, we train him in the technique of boarding trains and ships. While he is there, everything is done to relieve his anxiety and to maintain his morale. Chaplains and special service officers work together to provide recreation, physical exercise, and spiritual comfort. As for the actual embarkation, it is a smooth and efficient business. When he gets to the train and again at the pier, he hears band music, good band music, carefully chosen. We don't play I'm Nobody's Sweetheart Now or Who Stole My Gal. We play the Beer Barrel Polka, the Army Air Corps song, and the Transportation Corps song and things of that of that sort. The Red Cross, God bless them, never miss. Coffee in winter, lemonade in summer, and sandwiches, donuts, and fruit. I've watched thousands of your sons and not a few of your daughters sail away. Yes, thousands upon thousands. I've seen paratroopers and armored division men swagger aboard. I've seen infantrymen go up singing, aviators telling jokes. I've seen many who said nothing. But I've never seen one who was scared. We and all the Transportation Corps are charged with this one job, putting healthy, confident American fighting men aboard the ships which take them to the front. Thank you, General Homer Groninger, Commanding General, New York Port of Embarkation. Now back to Doug Edwards. And here is Warren Sweeney with a word from our sponsor. 
Every American is aware that great scientific and industrial advances have been made during the past two years. Advances especially apparent at the Admiral plants where new modern radio instruments roll off the assembly lines, go out to perform unbelievable tasks on the field of battle. Radio communications equipment, which gets the message through while being subjected to the jolting, the oil, dust, dirt, and heat of a tank. Radio locating devices with an uncanny ability to put the finger on enemy planes and ships. Radio altimeters, which warn a pilot as his plane approaches unseen projections. These Admiral-built products are possible because of the amazing advances made by radio science. When victory has been won, Admiral, in peacetime, the world's largest manufacturer of radio phonograph combinations with automatic record changers, will build the new Admiral Radio, a radio which, by incorporating many of these outstanding wartime advances, will set the pace for years to come. Attention men and women of Chicago, your country needs you. Help build vital communication equipment for our front-line fighters as the great Admiral plants in Chicago. The work is easy and interesting. No experience is necessary, and you'll be paid while learning. The factories are modern with the latest type machinery as well as company cafeterias for your convenience. Simply go to the employment office of the Admiral plant at 4150 North Knox Avenue by taking a Montrose streetcar to 4600 West, or take the Armitage Avenue car to the Admiral plant at 3815 Armitage. If you forget these addresses, just look up Continental Radio and Television Corporation in the phone book. Get into radio now, the modern business with a great future. Be sure to listen again next Sunday when Continental Radio and Television Corporation brings you World News Today, direct from the leading news centers of the world. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. The WBBM Air Theater, Wrigley Building, Chicago.